Yeah, absolutely. So if we're speaking to the niche of real estate investors and small business owners or people who are self-employed, I think one problem that's happening right now or misconception is relying on banks. So a lot of business owners and real estate investors, um, one way of scaling their businesses is getting access to more capital. So for example, somebody who has a line of credit of $100,000, they're using it, they're paying back on time, they're making the payments on time. And then the bank you know, sends them a letter saying, hey, congratulations, we're going to increase your limit to $250,000 now. A lot of real estate investors and business owners would see that as like a green light. You know, they're doing well in business now. They're getting access to more funding and lines of credit typically, you know, to specifically choose a line of credit as a type of vehicle, you know, they're typically, you know, low interest and they're very flexible. It's almost like a checking account that you have access to it. So people are thinking that this is a good thing. And in some situations, it is a good thing. But here's one problem that a lot of people are missing is it's not the interest rate that you're paying. It's the volume of interest interest you're paying. It's how many times you're paying it to that bank. And let's say, for example, you have a $100,000 line of credit at 5% interest, and then that line of credit increases to $250,000 at the same rate, 5%. Well, everybody's going to say it's the same interest. You know, it's 5%. My interest rate didn't go up. It's the same interest. But the amount of interest you pay to the lender now increases over time, which is what they want. So essentially, almost every business owner and real estate investor is working for the banks, you know, everything they're doing is they're paying banks, you know, like banks are earning passive income from as many real estate investors and business owners as they possibly can. This is the MindShift Podcast, where we share real stories, real strategies that will help you find real success. This is the place to hear from people just like you who have taken their ideas, goals and dreams from a point of inspiration to realization, or when life knocked them down, from a point of breakdown to breakthrough. I'm your host, Daryl Evans. Let's get started with today's episode. Hey, what's going on, my friend? Welcome to another episode of the MindShift Podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Before we jump in, you know the drill. Be sure to hit the subscribe and or follow button wherever you're listening to this show so that you never miss an episode. You might be listening on Apple, Google, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio. You might be listening on Amazon Music. It doesn't matter. We should have you covered where you can follow or subscribe to the show. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And also DM me on Instagram. I love the conversations that I'm having over there. DM me at Mr. Daryl Evans and let me know your biggest mindset shift from today's show. Also, if you're not a part of the MindShift community, you are missing all the fun. Head over to MindShiftCommunity.com to learn more and join for free. That's MindShiftCommunity.com, but don't do that now. It's time to shift your mind so you can shift your results. My guest today is Sari Ibrahim. He's a financial planner and member of the Bank on Yourself organization. He helps real estate investors, business owners, and full-time employees grow safe and predictable wealth regardless of market conditions using a financial strategy that has been around for over 160 years. After getting his MBA, he decided to start his financial services firm that focuses on one sole concept, the bank on yourself concept, also known as the infinite banking concept. During our show today, we discuss how product commoditization is hurting the industry of financial services and consumers, the beginning steps of how to think like a bank 
the powerful concept of arbitrage and why following popular financial advice can actually be risky. If you are or are an aspiring high net worth individual, real estate investor, business owner, or someone who is looking to make sure that they can grow and protect their wealth predictably and safely, you're in the right place. What's going on, Sari? How you doing? Welcome to the Mindshift Podcast. Hi, Daryl. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Good to have you here. Where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Chicago, Illinois. Chicago. How's the weather over there today? It's beautiful. Now is the best time of year. I think it's like 80 degrees right now in Chicago. This is the best time for those not familiar with Chicago. It's pretty much cold all throughout the year, except for the summer, really. <laughs> 80 degrees. This is June at the time of this recording. So great time to be in Chicago. Awesome. Well, glad to have you on the show. Listen, take a, a couple minutes and introduce yourself to our listening audience, and then we'll dive into a great discussion for the day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you for that. So I am from Chicago. I grew up in the southwest suburbs of Chicago, and now I live on the north side in the city. I've been living here for about three years, and I started a company a few years back called Financial Asset Protection. So it's a financial services firm, and we help clients build out you know, financial plans. We do financial coaching, financial counseling. We do it mostly in all 50 states. Sometimes in Canada, we have referral partners in Canada, but for the most part, it's in all 50 states, and we do it obviously all over Zoom and over the phone, a virtual presence. I wanted to kind of spread the message about what we do. You know, we, we work with a concept called the bank on yourself concept. And I made it my mission to spread more awareness about that concept, specifically for business owners and real estate investors and full-time employees. So that kind of led us to starting our own show called Thinking Like a Bank and then, you know, being on other people's shows. So I appreciate being here and hopefully we can dive into, you know, what bank on yourself is and other, you know, key financial strategies you'd like to talk about. Yeah, absolutely love your backstory, love your background, have a little bit of a taste of what it is that you do, but certainly not at the level that you do it at. So I think our audience is in for a great discussion, some mind-shifting discussions, because mm -hmm. I know that when I learned some of these concepts in 97, 98, 99, uh, which was when I was first exposed to what you're going to share, mm -hmm. it was counterintuitive, but it was insightful, and it has profited me fairly well. So uh, let me ask you this first question. What first got you interested in the world of financial planning and more so financial literacy? Yeah, it was more so from the, the standpoint of problem solving. So I always liked solving problems for people, for myself. I always I was kind of like attracted to that. And then I still wasn't sure. I wasn't clear on what I wanted to do. I went to get my MBA and to kind of open up my mind to different opportunities. I actually got an MBA with a concentration in project management because I thought I was going to be a project manager working for a large company, but it wasn't what I liked. I, you know, I, I found out that I wasn't really fascinated with project management terms. I didn't see myself sitting for the PMP exam or the project management professional exam. And then I made a shift into insurance. And then from there, it really led me to financial services. And then when I started to learn more, meeting more people, having mentors, having coaches, I realized that I can make a long-term career out of this, uh, running a financial services business slash insurance agency that I could do virtually. You know, this is way before COVID. You know, I already planned on doing a completely virtual insurance agency. So that kind of drew me into it. But more so the subject matter of financial planning. You know, I like numbers. I like business. I like to talk about the economy, the stock market. These are all appealing subjects. But more so on the other side for the clients, it's solving their problems. That's what really kind of keeps me and the day-to-day -day is solving people's problems. And it's kind of like a correlation. When people's problems are solved, then our agency grows. And then vice versa is true. If their problems are not being solved, then our agency cannot grow. There are all sorts of designations that come with financial services and those in the insurance world. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, in many cases, it can mean one thing or another. Mm -hmm. What's one of the biggest misconceptions about the world of financial planning, financial services, insurance, for example, that you encounter when you're meeting with people? Yeah. And if it's okay with y'all, I answer that more so from one of the problems out there, which can also lead to misconceptions. And one of the problems right now in financial services is that it's too commodified and too branded, meaning that, you know, somebody will sit with you and say, you know, I'm with this company and we have this product. And somebody else will say, no, that product isn't good. We have a better product. And then the clients are thinking now they want the best product. So it's very product driven, very price driven. It's too close to the numbers in, in the sense that, you know, product A will give us 8%, product B will give us 6%, let's choose product A. And that is a huge misconception about financial planning. It does not work that way. It is not about choosing the shiniest product or from the best company, nor is it really about choosing the advisor who has the most credentials, who has the most degrees. It is not about that. You obviously want an expert. You want somebody who's competent in financial planning, but more important than that, from the client's perspective, it's about identifying your objectives, what you want to accomplish in your life personally, what's important to you, and then finding an advisor that cares about your objectives and helps you reach your specific goals. And Daryl, if you notice, I'm saying your specific, you know, because people have different goals. But when we go into a paradigm, like for example, you know, five years after college, you should buy a house. Let's just say that. People would look at that as like a rule, like I have to buy a house because it's been five years after I graduated college, or I have to get married because it's been 10 years since I graduated college. So people put themselves into these brackets of paradigms. And a lot of financial services professionals follow these brackets like, all right, you should be in this situation. You should have X amount in savings. You should have 20% of that. It's not personally driven. It's product driven and too commodified. So I think that's one huge problem that's leading to a lot of misconceptions right now. I love the way you broke that down. It's this idea that there's a rule book or a playbook that by this age, you got to do this. By that age, you got to do that. And unfortunately, I agree that it is hurting. And I think in the generation that we're seeing, especially in the generation that you're a part of, the younger generation uh, in the millennial group, uh, we're seeing a lot of pushback today in this idea that, you know what, what you thought was the rule book, Mr. Baby Boomer or Miss Baby Boomer, it's not the rule book I want to play by. And what I think you're also underscoring here is this idea that it is personal, mm -hmm. right? And it is planning. And what you're talking about is this idea that everything is commoditized. It all looks the same. It's just choose A, B, or C based on this idea. And unfortunately today, especially today, we have a very advanced set of tools, which I know we're going to get into today mm -hmm. related to the financial markets. Here's a quick thought. And just to tee up where this is going to go, some of the tools that we're talking about that you're going to talk about today, they're actually not new. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's correct. Some of this is not new. What it is, and it's not known. Speak to that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Like, for example, you know, bank on yourself, also known as the infinite banking concept. It uses, you know, as you mentioned already, a counterintuitive approach. It's using, you know, out of all the financial products out there, it's a dividend paying whole life insurance policy. Um, and it's not because of the title of it, you know, just whole life insurance, but rather what it could do for clients. And when you really dig into what it could do, you know, from the tax benefits to liquidity to the risk mitigation or risk elimination in a lot of situations, you see that we've been doing this, especially in the United States since way before, you know, even before the Great Depression. As a matter of fact, businesses and banks and people who were able to survive through the Great Depression were people who had cash value whole life insurance because 
cash value whole life insurance wasn't impacted by the depression and it won't be it won't be impacted by future market trends it wasn't affected in the year 2000 with the dot-com crash it wasn't affected in 2008 with the recession it wasn't affected at the beginning of covid and i think that it's going to keep being that way because of you know again not so much about the, the shiny product but more so about what's going on in the background the moving parts in the background and it's because of the way that life insurance companies operate they operate differently from wall street from banks from other lenders they usually are very conservative. They're required to actually be very conservative. They're required to have at least two times, you know, their liabilities in, in cash reserves. So this means if they are promising $100 million in death benefits, they need at least $200 million in cash reserves. And it's actually crazy because I was reading this book, you know, called All About Annuities. And the author mentions that if you were to take all the life insurance companies, just the life insurance companies in the United States, and then pool all their cash together, that cash together would be greater than all of the banks and all of the oil companies in the world combined. So that's why, you know, insurance companies and their clients are able to survive through, you know, market trends and, you know, recessions and depressions. These are the underworkings of big industry that is a misconception, right? Because unfortunately, if you turn on the television, it's, uh, you know, save, I'm not picking on any company, but, you know, save 15% in 15 minutes or less, (laughs) right? You know, like a good neighbor, you know, I mean, nothing wrong with these are good companies. But the funny thing is, is how can they save you 15% in 15 minutes or less if they didn't have good underwriting. And if it wasn't a good business, it's not like they can just give you the coverage for free. Obviously, we're talking financial services here, those two companies I picked on, although they have stepped into your lane, uh, right? For the last couple of decades, they've actually moved from being primarily property and casually into the world of financial services. So you've got new competition in those big giants. Mm -hmm. Let's dive into some specifics and particulars. What is common mistake that your customers are making. And you'd like to speak to real estate investors, business owners. Let's talk about the niche who should be most tuning in to this idea and this concept that you're talking about. And let's talk about where and why it matters and should matter to them as an audience, because a lot of them are going to be listening to this show. And we'll come into more of the specifics about how you go about the planning process and some of the tools and benefits of mm-hmm. uh, the bank on you concept. Yeah, absolutely. So if we're speaking to the niche of real estate investors and small business owners or people who are self-employed, I think one problem that's happening right now or misconception is relying on banks. So a lot of business owners and real estate investors, um, one way of scaling their businesses is getting access to more capital. So for example, somebody who has a line of credit of $100,000, they're using it, they're paying back on time, they're making the payments on time. And then the bank, you know, sends them a letter saying, hey, congratulations, we're going to increase your limit to $250,000 now. A lot of real estate investors and business owners would see that as like a green light. You know, they're doing well in business now. They're getting access to more funding and lines of credit typically, you know, to specifically choose a line of credit as a type of vehicle. You know, they're typically, you know, low interest and they're very flexible. It's almost like a checking account that you have access to it. So people are thinking that this is a good thing. And in some situations, it is a good thing. But here's one problem that a lot of people are missing is, it's not the interest rate that you're paying. It's the volume of interest interest you're paying. It's how many times you're paying it to that bank. And let's say, for example, you have a $100,000 line of credit at 5% interest, and then that line of credit increases to $250,000 at the same rate, 5%. Well, everybody's going to say it's the same interest. You know, it's 5%. My interest rate didn't go up. It's the same interest. But the amount of interest you pay to the lender now increases over time, which is what they want. So essentially, almost every business owner and real estate investor 
is working for the banks. You know, everything they're doing is they're paying banks, you know, like banks are earning passive income from as many real estate investors and business owners as they possibly can. We need to change that. We need to be on the other side of that table where we are recouping that interest back into our pockets and not paying that out to other lenders. So it's a loss of opportunity cost. And Daryl, it's also a loss of control because these lines of credits and, and everything that's going on is not permanent. It's not like, you know, the bank has to abide by the line of credit. They could call it. It's a callable loan, meaning that they can send you a letter saying, hey, we're going to shut off your line of credit, no more funding. And on top of that, we're demanding, you know, all of it to be paid back plus the interest in five years. And if you don't, we'll come after you. You know, this happens all the time. This happened in 2008. Yep. You know, it happens for a lot of people. It's called, you know, a callable loan. The loan is in the favor of the banks. So I guess that's two huge problems for real estate investors and business owners is that the loss of opportunity cost through the interest they pay, the lack of control that they have. Sari, great points. And I think some things that some people just don't know, even if you're a seasoned investor and small business owner, I can speak exactly to what you just said. If you don't read the fine print on these credit cards or these lines of credit, uh, back in the day, home equity lines were huge. If you don't read the fine print, even if you do read the fine print, you still may say, I'm going to go ahead and do it. But here's something that really can be devastating. To Sari's point, you open up these lines of credit, which are unsecured, which means they're not usually secured by the property. There are certain loans where they are secured by property. Mm -hmm. But I think you're talking mostly about unsecured lines of credit. Mm -hmm. What you don't realize is they're callable, which simply means the bank can decide at any given day for any odd reason, they can shut the credit line off mm -hmm. and reduce the limit. So if you've got a $200,000 credit line, and maybe you're using $50,000 of it. If they decide to, they could say the credit line is no longer open, it's closed, and they can reduce your limit from 200000 to 50000 And if your balance is 50000 they've just maxed out your credit line, and now that reports on your credit. This happened in 2008, 2009, 2010. I was in the middle of it. It happened to me. And I know firsthand mm -hmm. that that's one of the huge risks that Sari is talking about here. So... I love the fact that you brought that up because some people don't know. If nothing else, go read your fine print on these big credit lines that you have. A colleague of mine, if you will, uh, had a lot of his loans with banks where they came after him and attached warrants because his business cash flow tipped over during a bad economic season. And that meant that he couldn't actually go and extend financing without paying down the current financing. Mm -hmm. And it was a typical ebb and flow of the business cycle. And again, I don't want to take it into a crazy side of it, but what Sari's talking about is there are other options, there are other tools that you're not even aware of. And we're going to get into some of that discussion now. So I'm really glad you brought that up. It's a huge point. And sometimes we get very casual with these banking lines because the bank gives it to us and our credit score is 720 today. But do you know your 720, your 800 credit score could be gone tomorrow mm -hmm. if for whatever reason an economic event happened and they decided to freeze your credit lines? And mm -hmm. it is devastating. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought that up. Let's talk about, so where does someone begin with this idea? They're like, okay, Sari, I got it. I'm exposed to some risks. I'm actually okay with those risks, but I want to take a look at some of these other options. Let's start educating the audience on these other options, this bank on yourself sort of option. Where do we begin? So it starts with like, number one, like understanding the concept, what it is, you know, what infinite banking is or bank on yourself. You know, there's, you know, a couple books I recommend. I recommend, uh, read the book, Coming Your Own Banker by Nelson Nash. That's a good book. And then uh, the Bank on Yourself Revolution by Pamela Yellen, who invented the Bank on Yourself concept. So those are books. So I would start with the content first, like get an idea of the concept, understand what it is exactly. And then you could always reach out to us. We could help you better understand this concept. Um, there's a lot of, you know, podcasts out there. 
Now, another thing too that I wanted to mention is that like as you go through the bank on yourself system or the infinite banking system, it is definitely, you know, mind shift, you know, for sure. It's a different way of thinking. You know, we're going from thinking like consumers and borrowers to thinking like banks, literally. The reason why I say that is because banks are the largest purchasers of whole life insurance. They use it, you know, they have different tiers of capital, like their tier one capital is their safest capital. Tier two is like their private equity, hedge funds, real estate. And then tier three is typically like their deposits, like the money that goes in and out of the banks. And they leverage tiers one, two, and three for their own benefit, right? In different ways, they loan that money out through credit cards, lines of credit. They're leveraging other people's money. The majority of their tier one capital across the nation is typically found in whole life insurance. So this means that when a bank needs to you know, loan out money to another bank or something, they need $100 million dollars. They would go to their whole life policy, borrow from that $100 million, loan that out, obviously at a higher interest rate, and then arbitrage, meaning that they buy money at a certain rate and then sell it at a greater rate. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning this is because anybody could do this. Anybody could essentially have whole life insurance, borrow against it, loan it out to anybody they want, loan it out to their own business. They could experience tax deductions. They, there's so many different things you could do. It's too much to just put in a, you know, in a 45-minute podcast about what you could do with whole life insurance and, and how it really works. But I think just understanding the idea of shifting your mind from thinking like a consumer to thinking like a bank, literally. You know, So you know, it's so much to talk about you know, with whole life insurance. Let's break down a few concepts. I think we can do the audience some justice. Let's go back to a comment that you made about arbitrage. Yeah. And let's actually explain to the audience what that actually means and how the bank uses it in the most basic of terms. You said tier one, tier two, tier three. That's going to be a little yeah. lofty. But let's just go to tier three. Mm-hmm. What does a bank do with our deposits mm-hmm. at the very basic level to create an arbitrage for themselves which can help us begin to think about where this bank on yourself concept goes. By the way, I have a background in finance, believe it or not. I don't know how I ended up in 20 years in the world of digital marketing, but I've got a degree in finance. I actually wanted to go work on Wall Street. So I'm actually very familiar with these concepts. I'm very passionate about it because mm-hmm. arbitrage shows up everywhere in our life. If you take a job mm-hmm. for $50,000 a year, the company is hiring you at an arbitrage mm-hmm. because they are hiring you because you're going to help them make more money. Yeah, of course. So let's just talk about arbitrage at the banking level with the basic level of deposits with that tier three asset. So with deposits, you know, banks are technically allowed to loan out 10 times more than their actual deposits, you know, so if they can bring in, you know, $1,000, they could loan out $10,000, you know, and then charge interest on that. On a basic level, arbitrage is pretty much imagine you know, you borrowed $100,000 from somebody at 5% interest. So your liability now is $5,000 for that year, the outstanding loan. And then you turn around and loan it out to somebody else at 7% interest. So your arbitrage is 2%, the difference between 7% and 5%. It's similar to like, for example, when you go to, you know, Costco or Sam's Club, you're a restaurant or you're a retail store and you buy a product at, you know, $2 and then you sell it at, you know, three or $4, you know, your art, that's the arbitrage the difference between what you bought it for and what you sold it for. And it's crazy because with banking, before I got into this industry, I always assumed, you know, when you go to a bank and you borrow, you know, $10,000, I thought that somebody had $10,000 in the background and there was a vault with $10,000. They loaned it (laughs) out to you, you know, it was their money, but it was, (laughs) but it's not. Right. (laughs) Like they took the money out the vault and put it somewhere (laughs) and they gave it to you. (laughs) (laughs) It's not the way it works. It's a great point. You know, in simplicity, everything is arbitrage, right? Let's just go to the grocery store. I used this example for a decade in a prior industry, and it was simply this. Someone raises cows who produces the milk. So from the time that that process happened to the time you pick up the carton out of the cooler, there were plenty of people, we call it a supply chain in the world of economics, 
that touched the delivery of that product to you. Mm -hmm. You paid retail. I'm just going to make up a number. It's $3 for the gallon, but it cost the farmer 42 cents, let's say. I don't know what the numbers are. So everyone along the way makes a little bit of arbitrage by what role they play in the delivery of that product or service. And that is the message. And at the end of the day, we are also doing that ourselves as earners, right? Which is what you're doing with real estate investors and business owners. Business owners think of cost of goods sold. It costs you a certain amount of money to produce the product or service that you're selling. And that is, in fact, your gross margin is your arbitrage, right? Mm -hmm. You're producing something for a dollar and you're selling it at another dollar. So we're all in the arbitrage business, if we really think about it. Fair mm -hmm. enough. I love the fact that it's it's a planning process, number one. It's not commoditized. And that is the big shift. That's one of the shifts. Like, what are you... I think the audience, if you're listening to this right now, it's like, what am I missing in my thinking? And so I want to take you into a conversation with... Let's just say you're having this conversation with me. I'm a business owner, and I am. Where do you start the conversation with me to begin to sort of unpack maybe my preconceived ideas, my preconceived notions. We've already done a little bit of that, but take me through sort of the early stage of what you're trying to unpack as to whether or not bank on yourself is an appropriate model for me. Yeah, that's a good question. So we would start with a financial analysis. It's about 60 to 90 minutes long. It's just me, for example, asking you questions as a business owner, like, hey, Daryl, you know, how much do you have in savings? How much do you have in a 401k or 403b if you have one or IRA? More importantly, it's not just about collecting hard numbers and data. More important than that, there's questions like, for example, how was money like for you growing up? You know, what are some of your five-year goals, your 10-year goals? What does the word retirement mean to you? You know, you have a different definition of retirement from me or from somebody else. It's going to be different. Like what you have in your mind. Now, I'm going to want to know that. I want to understand what money means to you. Like open-ended, you know, questions that I could see how you're thinking. And then from there, I would present a solution that's relevant to your needs and wants and objectives. It's going to be different from somebody else, you know? Now, some things, for example, that I could see, like if I'm talking to somebody and they're like, what's the rate of return on this? And then that obviously will show that they're not very familiar with how this works. But if they're constantly stuck on like rate of return, you know, what's the cost this year? What's the cost next year? It won't be a good fit for us. It's not the mindset that's going to connect with the concept and connect with us. You know, it's a long-term strategy. It's, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now through retirement, you know, for the next generation and the next generation after that, that's what we're looking to talk about. We're looking to talk about how do we plan for generations to come and not necessarily like, you know, what's the cost for this year? What's the cost for next year? Obviously that's important, but not as important as the overall picture. So the financial analysis, it, it will show us how the client is really thinking. And then, you know, it, it helps us also identify their true objectives. What do they truly want? When you have the right person in front of you, business owner, real estate investor, or other high net worth individual, someone who's really done well for themselves, or they're working to do well for themselves, let's be clear, this isn't just a strategy that you have to be already, you don't have to be already rich to do this. But let's say that, you know, when you think about a proper portfolio mix or allocating dollars into various investments, whether it's business, real estate, I mean, you usually want a mix of assets in your portfolio. Do you have a recommended allocation of someone's financial portfolio that should be allocated to this bank on yourself concept because it is one of multiple strategies in a holistic financial plan. Do you have a number that is a recommended number for that long-term picture? Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant question. So it depends on where they're at right now. And a lot of other bank on yourself professionals have different opinions about this. So my opinion is, for example, if somebody is, let's just say you know, they're 40 years old, 
and they're planning on working until age 70, either through self-employment or through you know W-2 employment. They're planning on working until age 70. So that would look like a 30-year plan, really, like a 30-year funding solution. So I would recommend initially that they start with about 10% of their annual income, pre-tax income. So if they make $100,000 a year, I would recommend um, allocating $10,000 a year. Now, the fact that you could use the policy for other types of investments, that typically over time increases that savings percentage. Because conventionally, when you think about allocating percentages, you know, for example, if we're going to say 70% stocks, 30% bonds, the assumption is that if you have $100, and $70 goes into stocks, and then $30 goes into bonds, that's it. There is no mixing anymore. Let's just say it's over 30 years. You've locked the door on those for 30 years. Whereas with whole life insurance, if I say 10%, it doesn't mean that 10% is only going to stay there. You know, we put 10% of the annual income into the policy, and then 10 years later, borrow from that, and then buy stocks, bonds, real estate, other things like that. So it gets kind of tricky because it's not a finite percentage. It's not... Once you allocate the funds to the whole life policy, that's all you could do is just put it in whole life insurance. Yeah. And it really does take more than a conversation here on the podcast. And I just hope that people are listening that there are options. Mm-hmm. You know, you look today, there are things happening in the stock market. I mean, we just, we don't have to go back 15 months to look at sort of the problems there with uh, when a pandemic shook those markets, both currency markets, the stock market, the bond market. I mean, we're about to hit a season of inflation here in the United States. The world of crypto is out there. I mean, there's no shortage of assets to invest in. If you're running a business, the business is an asset. Um, but what we're talking about is diversification. Mm-hmm. And there's numbers of ways to handle this. Bank on you isn't always mm-hmm. the best fit, which is what uh, Sari is talking about. Sari, let me ask, there's a pressing question that is in the back of my mind. And for the person who's sitting, listening to this, whether they're at the gym or a car, and they've been taught that whole life insurance is a scam, Right. And I don't expect you to unpack it all in this couple of minutes here, but what do you say to that person who's on the other side? Because right in my early 20s, I heard it. I heard it in my 20s. And then I got, of course, a little bit better educated on that about five years after that. But what do you say to that person listening to this right now? Yeah, I would assume that they probably heard that from maybe, I don't know, Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman. And you know there could be some truth to it. So for example, Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman, they have a lot to say about whole life insurance and a lot of people get their facts from them. So it could be right. They say, for example, whole life insurance is too expensive. It has very little liquidity. You could do a lot more with buying term and investing in the stock market. And Daryl, there's a lot of ways to address this now. But one way to address this is Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman are not really financial professionals. They're not financial advisors. You know, they don't have degrees in finance. I wouldn't really trust what they say about whole life insurance. And that's one angle. The second angle is that let's break it down. Let's do the math on it. You know, if you were to, for example, instead of doing whole life insurance, do term and then invest the difference, I would ask how predictable is this? How predictable is that solution? So let's say, for example, over 30 years, you're 40 years old, instead of putting into whole life insurance, you're going to do a 30-year term policy and then invest the difference in the stock market. So for 30 years, you're going to invest in the stock market and have a term policy. And then at age 70, your term policy would expire. And that's okay. You don't need it anymore because you've built so much money in the stock market. And then now you can be self-insured. If something happens to you, you can just pass on the stock market wealth to your family because you've built so much wealth. Well, from age 40 to age 70, what will the stock market be? Let's just say $3 million or whatever. How are you so certain that it's going to be at $3 million? Nobody does. Nobody knows. Even people 
who have PhDs in quantitative finance and economics from MIT and Harvard and prestigious universities around the world, even those people are wrong 95% of the time about the future trends of the stock market. So how is your financial advisor down the street going to know? How is Dave Ramsey going to know? How is Susie Norman going to know? How are these people going to know truly what the stock market is going to do 30 years from now? Nobody does. So that takes a lot of credibility away from what the projections will be 30 years from now. I could show a client, hey, instead of putting in whole life insurance, you'll have $10 million in the stock market. It doesn't really make a difference. It's just a speculation projection. It's not solid. You know, and I think that providing for your family and for yourself, you need to have solid, real, guaranteed numbers, not just speculation, not just things that are guessing or gambling. That's one way to address this. I can keep going on into different different money. No, I think you made your point. And, you know, listen, at the end of the day, and again, we weren't uh, necessarily calling out Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman. If those are your folks that you listen to, great. This isn't a you know session to say that they're not credible in what they do. They've got a great audiences, huge fan bases. What I think Sari is talking about is, and he said it earlier in the show, bank on you isn't for everyone, isn't the right fit for everyone. At the end of the day, what I think you're saying is in a business, nothing is guaranteed. When you buy real estate, nothing is guaranteed. When you buy stock market, stock assets, paper assets, Mm -hmm. whether you're buying crypto today, it doesn't matter. Marriage isn't guaranteed. I mean, nothing's guaranteed. I mean, so the reality is you're saying you've got to put a plan together. And what I think you're inviting people to consider if it's even feasible and it makes sense for their journey to consider this bank on you concept. And that's what I think I'm hearing you say. And I know that that was the invitation I received in 1997, which is, uh, seems like a, well, it was was a couple of decades ago. And now it didn't take all of my portfolio. Mm -hmm. It took a small part of my portfolio. And so I think that's really what we want to try to do is there are mechanisms Mm -hmm. that are available that you do not have to be ultra wealthy to get your hands on. And from my understanding, and again, elementary, because I got into the world of it and followed my advisor's advice. And then I went back to doing what I did, which was build businesses. Like, that's what I do. Mm -hmm. What is available, though, is the information. And then you can make an educated decision. And you can see if this, in fact, does fit into your entire holistic financial plan. You know, I do have a question that's kind of interesting for me. Was there anything that happened in your life that got you to the place where you're so passionate about this topic? I mean, I know you stated a little earlier that you've taken an interest to it, but I often find when I'm talking to experts like yourself that something has triggered, something was a triggering event that sort of led down this path. Was there anything like that in your walk? Yeah, there was actually a couple. One of them that kind of resonates right now that I could think about is I was working at a company. I was like a, a national sales rep. I would travel to different states and go around the country. And I liked it a lot, you know, and I would travel a lot and I made good money and had good benefits. And And I remember at one time I was like in the airport, you know, about to board a plane. And I was like, this is all really cool, you know, but this is literally statistically speaking you know based off of other jobs i'm literally you know the first to go you know when things get tight for a company usually the sales reps are like the first to go you know not to generalize but and i was just saying that i'm not in a safe position right now this is not like a safe job and i need to really become self-employed i need to own my own business and that's what really triggered me to owning my own practice right now uh, is because i just never have to really hope that some cfo or ceo who i don't even know is gonna just make the decision to terminate my employment or, you know, be laid off. So that was one turning point, but I had a lot of turning points. That's just one that I can remember right now. You know, it's interesting because everything in life is risky, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing is guaranteed. There's a phrase I use. I actually did an episode earlier on the Mindship podcast. I'll link it up in the show notes called safe is the new risky. And 
anything that we really think is super safe and ultra safe, it actually has an, an element of risk. Mm-hmm. Because if it's super, super safe, it probably won't yield you very much. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the fact that it doesn't change and doesn't produce any yield is risky. Here's a quick, easily example to tie into what you're saying today. Mm-hmm. The bank seems safe. They guarantee what deposits up to, I don't know, what is it, $250,000 or whatever the number is. Mm-hmm. And they pay you, if it's a savings account, a certain amount of interest to keep the money there and just kind of hang out. And it's safe. But they pay you roughly today, I don't know if it's a half a percent <laughs> of interest. Mm-hmm. A tenth of a percent. But yeah. yeah. But then in the same conversation, we're having a conversation about inflation rates being held around 2%. So let's just do easy math. In the United States, by the way, this is where we are. If the Federal Reserve's job or intention is to hold the inflation rate in or around 2% and you're only getting a half a percent in your savings, are you winning or losing? Like you don't have it's a, it's a negative arbitrage. Yeah, you don't have to have a finance degree. You don't have to have an MBA like my man Sari has. <laughs> you don't have to be a business owner or ultra wealthy to figure out two minus a half is negative one and a half. So if that math doesn't resonate with you, then I'm not sure you're listening to the right show. The bottom line is there are tools, there are resources, and Sari has put together his practice to help those yeah. who want to explore those. That being said, Sari, I really want to uh, you know, thank you for being on the show. Where can people connect with you if they are wanting to explore further the concept that you've been discussing today? Yeah, I'll be more than happy to talk to anybody who's interested. They can go to finassetprotection.com. It's F-I-N, assetprotection.com. I also wrote an ebook. You can download the free ebook from that site, finassetprotection.com. And then from there, you can also connect with me on LinkedIn. You can send me an email. You can schedule a free appointment all from that one website, finassetprotection.com. That's amazing. We'll link everything up for the way to connect with you, Sari, in the show notes. And from there, I want you to also mention the podcast that you started, which I think the title is brilliant. Tell everyone really quick about your podcast. Yeah, so it's called Thinking Like a Bank. And obviously, we made this show in March. Uh, We made this show so that way we can share strategies and principles about how banks think. We've had guests come on who are financial professionals, accountants, lawyers, real estate professionals, real estate investors, and pretty much the way of leveraging money differently and thinking about money differently. That's kind of the objective of the show. Uh, We started in March of 2021. We have about 15 episodes up so far, and it's a weekly podcast. So check out the show. Please subscribe to it. I would really appreciate it to get some momentum around the show. That's awesome. Well, appreciate you uh, taking the leadership role to share your thoughts uh, through the medium of podcasting. Thank you again for being on the Mindship Podcast. All the best of success in your continued journey of helping people uh, shift their mind as it relates to the potential and possibilities for long-term financial planning. Mm -hmm. I always like to ask my guests before we wrap up uh, kind of a final question, and that is if for some odd reason you were not able to be on this uh, beautiful planet we call Earth tomorrow, what would you want uh, the world to remember you for? I'd want to be remembered as a problem solver. So somebody who, you know, would, would help people solve problems. You know, they think of me, they think of the person who helped them with their problems. That's awesome. Sari Ibrahim, thank you for being on the MindShift podcast. Thank you. Hey, my friend, thanks again for listening to today's episode of the MindShift podcast. Listen, let's not have the conversation end here. Connect with me on social at Mr. Daryl Evans on almost all the platforms with the exception of Facebook. My Facebook fan page is at Daryl Evans fan. Until next week, remember, you're just one shift away from the breakthrough you're looking for.